Good afternoon. It is a blessing and a joy to be here today. We're very encouraged to have many visitors with us. want you to know that we're uh, very encouraged by your presence. want you to feel welcome here. And we hope the, the things that we uh, do today in worship to the Lord uh, and now in study of His Word will be beneficial, uh, will help build up and encourage. Uh, the song that we just sang says that God's Word is more precious than fine gold and sweeter than honey. Uh, there's no truer statement. And so we want to make sure that as we study today, our, our focus is on God's Word. That's where the authority is. That's where the power is. Uh, nothing that Grady Huggins has to say is, is of any value within itself. Uh, only if we are looking to what God has to say within His Word. And so that's where I want the, the focus to be today and invite you to follow along in your Bibles. We're going to be talking about a very sensitive topic today, a very taboo topic to, to preach about, uh, and that's the topic of homosexuality. It's, it's a very emotionally charged subject, uh, and addressing it from a biblical perspective is not a very popular thing to do. And if we go to the scriptures and see what they have to say about this topic, we, we are bound to offend some people. And while we have no desire whatsoever to unnecessarily offend, to stir up strife, to belittle, ridicule, or attack anyone, we have a very deep and abiding desire for the truth of God's Word. Because God's Word alone can save us from our sins. It alone can offer us eternity in His presence. And our Creator, the creator of man and woman, the designer of the sexual relationship, the institutor of marriage, has some serious things to say about homosexuality. And our goal in this lesson is really not to address the atheists or the humanists and try to get them to change their view of human sexuality. Really, we're going to be addressing this from a biblical perspective. And if, if somebody doesn't share or respect for the authority of God's word, they're going to come to a much different conclusion. But we're addressing today Christians, or those who claim to respect the authority of God's word. Because that's where our focus is going to be. What does God have to say about this? Because what is so concerning about the LGBT movement in our nation is not simply its effect on society in general, but its effect on Christians, on those who would claim to follow God. Because if we're not careful, we can become swept up in the tide of our culture, and we can cease to stand firm upon God's word. We can start rationalizing outright rebellion to what God tells us within his word. And so what I want us to consider today is not simply, is homosexuality right or is it wrong within the scriptures? Uh, I feel like the passage that we just read in Romans chapter 1 makes that fairly clear from the get-go. What I want us to address maybe more deeply is to consider our mindset regarding homosexuality. Uh, how should we view it? How should we react to it as we interact with those in society around us? Uh, how should we talk about it? How should we think about it? And so I hope that we can dig deep into God's word to allow its truth to, to shine the light on some lies that Satan tries to get us to believe that our society has, has full sail bought into. And so what we're really going to address is four lies regarding homosexuality today. And I think a good place to start is the lie that opposition equals hate. I want to make it very clear I have 
no hate whatsoever in my heart for anyone who is involved in a homosexual lifestyle. Um, no ill will. That's not what this is about at all. And yet, in society, uh, the very fact that we oppose this lifestyle within itself to some is hate speech. In fact, uh, a few years back in the Huffington Post, uh, a writer named Dr. Joe Wenk wrote a piece called Deciphering Hate Speech. I'm just going to read a, a couple excerpts from it. He writes, usually hate speech is pretty direct. Later on he says, but sometimes hate speech isn't direct at all. Consider, for example, how anti-LGBTQ organizations use the word family. He uses some examples. He uses American Family Association, Family Research Institute, focus on the family. Then goes on to say, their use of the word family and the phrase traditional family values is itself a form of hate speech. Goes on to talk about all the implications of using the phrase traditional family values um, or even defining family in the way that we might define it. And so we can see that very clearly even taking a stance for what we believe to be God's definition of marriage, God's definition of family, God's regulations for uh, the sexual relationship as he designed it, uh, is to some going to seem to be hate. But brethren, we need to make sure that as much as depends on us, there, there is no question in people's mind that hate is not what is motivating us to talk about this. It is true, the Bible teaches us that we must hate sin. But on the contrary, we must love the sinner. In Psalm 97 and verse 10, Psalm 97 and verse 10, here we read, You who love the Lord hate evil. Also, Proverbs 8 and verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Should we hate sin? Well, yes. The Bible teaches that if we love God and we recognize that sin is a rebellion against Him, sin is what put Jesus on the cross, we're going to hate that which put Jesus on the cross. We're going to abhor it. Not just homosexuality, any sin, the sin that stains my soul, I'm going to hate. If I fear the Lord, I should hate evil. If I recognize the consequences of sin in my own life and in the lives of those around me, the eternal consequences, then I'm going to hate that which endangers people's souls. But that does not mean that we are to hate the sinner. Revelation 2 and verse 6, God commends the church in Ephesus by saying, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now notice he doesn't say you hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He says you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Does God hate sinners? God hates sin. God hates the sin that put his son upon the cross, that ruins the perfect image within our souls, but he loves sinners. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 we read, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much does God love sinners? So much that he was willing to send his own son to die for sinners like you and like me. And so we need to make sure that while we do hate sin and its consequences and what it causes, uh, the, the breakdown in our relationship with God, the eternal consequences, 
that we have God's love for the sinner. God's love that he has demonstrated to us in our sins. God certainly loves you just the way you are. But he loves you too much to let you stay that way. In Matthew chapter 9, if you'd like to turn with me there, Matthew chapter 9, verse 11 through 13, we see two different attitudes towards sinners. The, the attitude portrayed by Jesus and the attitude portrayed by the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 11, it says, When the Pharisees saw this, that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees saw the tax collectors and sinners and they said, well, we don't want to have anything to do with those type of people. Jesus saw tax collectors and sinners and he didn't approve of their sins. It's not his stamp of approval upon them that he's spending time with them. But he didn't distance himself, did he? No, later on in Matthew 11 and verse 19, he's referred to as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, in our society today, we might say Jesus was a friend of homosexuals and lesbians. Jesus was one who reached out in love because he recognized the, the sickness that plagued them, that they needed to be healed from. All sin is sickness, spiritual sickness that stains our soul, that we need Jesus' healing. You know, does the, the doctor hate the, the cancer patient when he, when he comes up to the cancer patient and tells him the bad news? Brethren, I hate cancer. I hate cancer. I hate what it does to people. But I love the cancer patient. That needs to be our attitude. Whether it applies to homosexuality, whether it applies to any sin, we need to love the sinner and hate the sin. Just like we love ourselves and yet hate the sin that stains our soul and that separates us from God. And that love should manifest itself in trying to seek people with the cure. In trying to spread the truth of God's word in love. James chapter 5 verse 19 and 20. We read, He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. True love is not going to be silent when we recognize that people's eternal souls are in danger. When we recognize that the people in the world around us are in danger of separating themselves eternally from God, we need to reach out to save them in love. And we also need to recognize that we're not simply trying to convert a homosexual to be a heterosexual. We're trying to convert a homosexual to surrender their lives to the Lord. It's not that we're just trying to rewire their flesh. We're trying to crucify their flesh. That's what Jesus requires of us. That we all crucify our fleshly desires, whatever they may be. And bring them in subjection to the Lord. Romans chapter 1 that we read earlier. Romans chapter 1 
In verse 18, beginning this section, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know, the, the first step that leads towards what we later read in verse 26 and 27 about the corruption of God's creation of the sexual relationship, the first step is suppressing the truth. And so what's the solution? It's to reveal the truth. It's to proclaim the truth. It's to expose our corruption of God's perfect creation. And yet, at the very end of this section, down in verse 32, notice we read, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Here, God doesn't just rebuke those who are involved in the sin, but those who are giving hearty approval to it. Brother, that can't describe us. When we recognize what sin is and what it does to God's creation, what it does to, to his image stamped upon our souls, what it does to our relationship with our creator, we need to be passionate about shining the light of truth, about proclaiming the healing of the great physician. But not only do we need to recognize that opposition does not have to equal hate, but also lust does not equal love. One of the great mantras of the um, LGBT movement is that all love is equal. I'm sure you've seen bumper stickers or, or other signs with, it, with an equal sign. And many times when you see different things on uh, the internet or on television that, that portray homosexuality, many times it portrays two people that are very committed to each other, two people that enjoy spending time with one another, two people that uh, seem to have a, a mutual love and, and appreciation for one another. And you might start thinking, well, you know, that, that looks kind of... Good. Yes, love is good, isn't it? But what's happened is we've, we've gotten the bait and switch. Because what is being portrayed to us, for the most part, is good. Love is good, as God defines it. Strong uh, relationships of uh, emotional intimacy and support of one another are good. What, what they don't show is the sin that's going on behind the scenes. What they don't show is the lust that is involved. If we define love the way that God defines love, we need to recognize that there's nothing evil about love, as God defines it, between two men or two women. What's evil is lust between two men or two women. 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1, we read, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? A very good thing. We see love. We see commitment to one another, seeking the well-being of each other. That's good. That's something that, that is praiseworthy. But when we start believing that that, that love involves erotic and, and romantic relationships, and sexual lust, when we start confusing the two, we're not going to view things the way that God would have us. 
Defining love as physical and sexual intimacy is our problem. There's a reason that the sexual revolution of the 1960s preceded the homosexual revolution of the 2000s. Because we first started defining love as free, intimate, physical relationships. And when we start believing that, then this idea that all love is equal can take us by surprise. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 23, shows us that love is a fruit of the Spirit. Sexual immorality is a work of the flesh. Love can't be a justification for sexual activity anywhere outside of the relationship that God designed it. And that doesn't matter if it's sexual lust involved in a heterosexual or in a homosexual relationship. Outside of marriage, it doesn't matter where it is. We are rebelling against God's design. Sexual lust within these relationships is what is sinful. Back in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. As we read earlier in verse 26, it says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their ear. Notice how God describes these relationships. He describes it as burning desires, degrading passions. Now, I don't doubt in the least that in some of uh, maybe many of these homosexual relationships, there is an element of, of genuine love. But that's not what we're wanting to get rid of. If it's genuine love as God defines it, then good. What we're talking about here is lust, about unlawful sexual relationships uh, in rebellion to God's design. You know, I, I don't think it would be quite as persuasive if we started using the slogan, all lust is equal. But that's really what it boils down to. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the passage that we considered during the Lord's Supper today, in fact. Notice, what, what is it here that is going to keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God? He, he lists a variety of different sins, uh, as Eric pointed out, um, sins that, that we can't simply distance ourselves from and say, well, that's not me. Now, all of us have committed sins that will separate us from God, but included in this list in verse 9, it says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What, what is it that we're talking about here that is going to keep us out of the kingdom of God? Is love going to keep us out of the kingdom of God? <laughs> Not as God defines it. No. Homosexuality. The unlawful sexual relationship. The lust. And so it's not, you know, having a, a feminine-sounding voice or mannerisms. It's, it's, it's not liking the color pink. Uh, it is corrupting God's design for our sexuality and for marriage, for the one-flesh relationship that is going to keep us from entering the kingdom of God. 
And so we need to make sure we define our terms the way that God defines them. But thirdly, another lie that we need to shine the light of God's word on is that I was born this way. Lady Gaga's hit song by this title topped the charts in 2011 uh, in over 25 countries. It became one of the best-selling singles of all time. And this concept that I was born this way, that this is just who I am, uh, and I need to be true to myself, I need to follow my heart, is a very prevalent issue, not just as it applies to homosexuality, but as it applies to anything. Well, this is just who I am. Nothing is going to change me. This is, this is who I was meant to be. Stop trying to change me. I think we need to recognize foundationally that God did not create us with evil desires. God is not to blame. You look at Genesis chapter 2 and God's perfect creation in the beginning before sin entered the world. God made everything good, and God created man and woman to have a one-flesh relationship. That was his design. God designed man and woman to uh, support and uh, encourage one another spiritually, emotionally, physically. He created them as corresponding puzzle pieces that they are able to engage in this one-flesh relationship in a way that can start a family, that can have children, that can build a home. That is God's design. And yet, from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, man has always seeked to blame God for his sin. Remember, when Adam is confronted with his sin in Genesis 3 and verse 11, what does he say? The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. This woman that you created, well, she really was the stumbling block that, that caused me. What, what does Eve say when, when she is approached with her sin? She says, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Regardless of what the sin is, we, we constantly want to say, well, I just couldn't help myself. I, I, you know, th- this is just who I am. This is how it is. No. God didn't create us that way. And James 1 clears this up for us. If you want to turn to James 1. James 1, starting in verse 13. In verse 13, we read, Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Don't be deceived. God doesn't create anything evil. God created all things good. God is the giver of every good gift. It says there in verse 13, we can't say that we're tempted by God because God cannot be tempted by evil. What, what he's really kind of saying is, is if you caught this disease of sin, you didn't catch it from God. Because he's immune to it. And where does he put the blame here? In verse 14 he says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Many times we do want to be like Eve and say, Well, Satan. Satan's where temptation comes from. That's not what James tells us here. Certainly Satan is involved in that. I'm not denying that. But James puts the responsibility on our shoulders. 
It says each one is tempted when he is carried away by his own desires and enticed. Well, you say, well, didn't God create me with those desires? Yes, God created you uh, with good and wholesome and pure desires. God created us with the desire for food. Is that a good desire? Yes, but can we corrupt it? The Bible talks about gluttony. God created us with a, a sexual desire. Is that good? Yes, when kept within the context of God's intention for it. And yet, when we start seeking fulfillment outside of God's design, then we uh, are enticed and drawn away by those desires. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29 says, God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. We have used the good creation of God as building blocks to create our own corruption, sin of our own devising. And yet, even further than that, we need to recognize that the temptations that we struggle with do not have to define us. I think part of the reason that this is such an emotionally charged issue is because many in society don't view homosexuality as simply a lifestyle or an activity. They view it as an identity. That when you talk about this, you're not just talking about what I do, you're talking about who I am. But I think that within itself is where the error starts to spread out. That we start identifying ourselves by the temptations that we struggle with. There's a movie that was made in 2011 called That's What I Am. And in this movie, you have these elementary age children who, who start learning to, to find their identity in what they do. You hear phrases like, I'm a teacher and that's what I am. I'm a singer and that's what I am. I'm a writer and that's what I am. You know the storyline of the entire movie is about a teacher who is accused of homosexuality and refuses to deny it based on principle. What is that movie trying to teach us? That what I do, my lifestyle, my choices, that is who I am and nobody's going to change me. Nothing is going to make any difference. That's who I am. I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to fulfill my dreams. I think we need to be very careful about that mindset in general. The world tells us I am what I am and nothing is going to change me. I'm going to follow my heart and do what I want no matter what anyone else says. But when we say following our hearts, what we often mean is following our fleshly lusts. Now God calls us to deny self, not to go out searching for self. God calls us to bring our hearts in subjection to his will. In Galatians chapter 5, if you'd like to turn over there. Galatians chapter 5, starting verse 16. We read, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. What are we called to as Christians? We're called to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. 
In fact, if you go on in verse 24 and 25 of this passage, he says, Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We need to stop defining ourselves by this flesh in general and start defining ourselves by the Spirit, by our identity in Christ. I don't at all deny that whether by nature or by nurture, there are people who are more susceptible to the temptation of homosexuality. But that doesn't have to define you. There are people that whether by nature or nurture are more susceptible to the temptation of alcoholism. But they still have to make a choice to take the first drink. There, there are people, whether by nature or by nurture, that are more susceptible to, to having a, a quick temper. But they are not justified in saying, well, that's just who I am. No, God requires that we bring that aspect of our character and our personality in subjection to his will. That, I may struggle with that more than somebody else does. The struggle within itself is not the sin. It's when I start defining myself by that struggle and allowing that struggle to guide my life. And so that brings us to one last lie. I can't change. The song Same Love by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis was featured in the Grammys in 2014. It's been known as the gay rights anthem. And the chorus says, I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to. The first verse says, the right-wing conservatives think it's a decision and you can be cured with some treatment and religion, man-made rewiring of a predisposition, playing God. Here they claim that anyone who seeks to, to change somebody from living this lifestyle is playing God. Brethren, let's not play God. Let's let God be God and listen to what he says within his word. Let's let his word guide our lives. The fact is, God tells us that all temptations can be overcome with his help. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We read, No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Brethren, if, if you are struggling with the temptation of homosexuality, know that you're not the only one. Now, God doesn't tell us this here to say that temptation is common to man to, to get us to think, well, everybody struggles with it. It's okay. It's no big deal. That's not the point. The point is you're not alone. We're all facing temptations. And if you're facing this temptation, know that you're not the only one. I've talked to many other Christians who have dealt with this temptation and yet are committed to subjecting their flesh to the direction of God's Spirit. It doesn't matter what our struggle may be. God provides a way of escape. God will give us the strength to overcome. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 11. We read, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. With God's help, 
you can change, but you have to try, and you have to want to. The problem is that many times we aren't fully committed to surrendering our lives to God, but yet if, if we do surrender ourselves fully to the Lord, we can know that God has the power to transform us. We read the passage earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about the sins that will separate us from entering into God's kingdom, but in verse 11 it says, Such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Here, the Corinthians were involved in the sins that are described in verse 9 and 10, one of those being homosexuality. And yet, by God's grace, by the cleansing power of Jesus' blood, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, such were some of you. God has the power to change us, to transform us. You may continue to struggle with those desires. Brethren, the struggle within itself is not the sin. But we need to bring whatever struggles it is that we face under subjection to God's will within our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Christ has the power to transform us to give us a new life, to bury the old man of sin and baptism, to be raised to walk in newness of life. It doesn't matter what sin you're struggling with today. Know that there is nothing that the power of God's grace, the cleansing power of Jesus' blood, cannot wash away. If you're willing to surrender your life to him, you can be restored in a relationship with him. You can have a hope of eternity in his presence. You can look to his strength, his armor, to strengthen you in the spiritual battles that you face. I hope we've made it very clear today that everything that we say regarding this sin or any other is motivated by love. Genuine love for the eternal well-being of people's souls. And if you recognize today that for one reason or another, you are separated from God, that some sin is continuing to linger, that the stain is continuing to linger on your soul. Won't you be willing to surrender your life to the Lord today? To confess your belief in Jesus as the Son of God? To turn your life over to Him? To bury the old man of sin and baptism and be raised to walk in newness of life? If you need to make that commitment today, there is nothing that would bring more joy to the heart of God, to these brethren here, than to help you in that. And if you've made that commitment, but you're not living it, and you need to make some public change, know that we are ready to assist you in any way that we can as you seek to turn your life back to the Lord. If anyone needs to make some need known to these brethren, we ask that you'll let us know at this time as we sing.